Hey, another great episode of Roundup is coming up next. If you like what you heard, please go online to redsearadio.org and donate, become a monthly sustaining member, and keep us on the air. Thank you and God bless. Good morning. It is Wednesday, October 6, 2021. This is the Red Sea Roundup. Thank you for joining us. I'm your host, Deacon Mike Beauvais. Today, as always, we have a great show for you. In our second segment, we're going to be talking with Professor Steve Weidenkopf about his latest book, Light from Darkness, Nine Times the Catholic Church Was in Turmoil and Came Out Stronger Than Before. Uh, Dr. Weidenkopf teaches at the Christendom College Graduate School of Theology, And he's the author of numerous books, including Timeless, A History of the Catholic Church and um, The Church and the Middle Ages, 1000 to 1378. Uh, But always, as always, we want to welcome everybody uh, listening to us here on KEDC 88.5 FM Hearn Bryan College Station. And also, welcome to our Central Texas listeners on KYAR 98.3 FM, Lorena Waco. And a shout out to our listeners in Palestine on KINF 107.9 FM. Our show this morning is live, so if you have something you want to share with the listening audience about what's going on in your parish, feel free to give us a call, 85-LOVE-RED-C, that's 855-683-7332. And I am blessed to be joined in the studio this morning, not only by Dr. Thaddeus Romanski, our general station manager. Good morning, Deacon Mike. Good morning, but also with Dennis Makas here. So the obviously. The other guy. Howdy, Deacon Mike. Good morning. Howdy. Obviously, they decided I needed much more supervision than I've been getting. Yeah, we got to hold your feet to the fire, get this thing going, get it, get the job done. Exactly. And uh, in the first part of the segment, uh, we have been during the year of St. Joseph. We have. Been saying the prayer to St. Joseph. And so I would ask everyone to please join us as we continue that. And let us begin in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. O blessed Joseph, faithful guardian of my Redeemer, Jesus Christ, protector of your chaste spouse, the Virgin Mother of God, I choose you this day to be my special patron and advocate, and I firmly resolve to honor you all the days of my life. Therefore, I humbly call on you to receive me as your adopted child, to instruct me in every doubt, to comfort me in every affliction, to obtain from me all the knowledge and love of the sacred heart of Jesus, and finally, to defend and protect me at the hour of my death. Amen. Amen. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. And I need to remind everybody that during the year of St. Joseph, if you pray this prayer, it comes with a plenary indulgence instead of just the usual partial indulgence. And of course, in order to take advantage of the plenary indulgence, you have to follow all the instructions that go with it. Right, like you have to go to confession, sins have to be forgiven. Yes, and you have to go to communion within a reasonable amount of time. Exactly. So, uh, take advantage of it. Now... uh, And let's not forget you have to be free of all attachment to 
sin, okay. which is really hard. I was going to say, you know, <laughs> I was going to say, you know, I can do all that. Now you ruined it for me. I'm sorry. That's I'm the hard sorry. part. That's the little, little uh, fine print that everyone tries to ignore. Tries to ignore. Yes. But uh, before we get into the what I wanted to talk about in this first segment, uh, I wanted to make sure we don't forget that we have our benefit dinner coming up. We do indeed have our benefit dinner coming up. We've got two benefit dinners coming up. Well, that's right, because we have the one coming up in Central Texas also. That's right. So Thursday. The next day. That's right. Thursday, November 11th, Veterans Day is going to be our benefit dinner here in the Brazos Valley at the Brazos Center. Doors open at 6. Meet and greet from 6 to 7. Beer and wine. Mm-hmm. Then program gets started at about 7.05. Right. We're going to have delicious meal for y'all. We just lined up our... Oh, my gosh. Should we tell them? Should we tell them? Heck, yeah. Go ahead and tell them. We just lined up our caterer, folks. So we... uh, We've been going with Sloppy Joe for the last several years, but they stopped their catering business. Thank you, Joe Fazino, for all your service. You Indeed. Just May God have bless served you. served us well. We're going to go with Smitty K's this year, and they are going to do an Italian feast ah. for St. Joseph. And so we are going to have spaghetti and meatballs, choice of spaghetti and meatballs. With Modiga. And, uh, or you can choose the... Uh, Chicken Alfredo. And and we did a taste test yesterday, <laughs> and so you're we pretty you, pretty happy. You're not going to lose out either line. L- let me tell you, if you're upset because we run out of spaghetti and meatballs, you won't be because that chicken parmesan was, uh, that chicken Alfredo was just yeah, it was mm-hmm. really amazing homemade Alfredo. So we're going to have that. Uh, we're going to have a more traditional feast. For you in Waco, I believe we're going to be going with uh, Darren Sincouli and the Knights of Columbus. Yeah, the Knights of Columbus are going to cook it, so you can't go wrong. Mm-hmm. But it's more of a traditional feast. I think we're going with pork roast of some sort. Nice. Something nice. like that. It's going to be something similar to that, more of an Americana meal. Mm-hmm. So uh, mm-hmm. we are, we're looking forward to I great... I thought you were going like schnitzel or something like no, that. No, not this year. That'd we've be done awesome, that. right? Some schnitzel? We've done yes. that in the past. We've done that in the past, huh? so... Oktoberfest? Yeah, we had an Oktoberfest at one point. So but anyway, it's going to be great. Yeah. Uh, we we have one person that says the ma- the Catholic Man Show is her favorite, favorite new, new show. show. So yeah, we've got uh, Charlene out there is very much looking forward to the table that they just reserved. And we're about 50% capacity at both dinners, which is can really still, good this far out. Could still use some more table reservations, especially we don't have a $5,000 table sponsorship yet uh we do in waco oh we do in waco yeah yeah all right well come on brazos valley let's yeah. let's get that five thousand dollar table sponsorship but no, we're, we're really aiming two for people to come with new friends yeah. and stock your table full of new people if you can we want a lot of people to hear about the message yeah, of what people we're that doing have never here. been before we want we want them to come and experience the the joy and the fun of a of a red sea benefit dinner yeah no with, empty seats please with, with the catholic man show guys adam minahan and david niles it's gonna be a lot of fun yeah a yes. lot of Food fund, fellowship, frivolity. They're they're very smart, but they're very they're kind of sassy too. Oh yeah. They're mm-hmm. fun. So they're fun guys. It's gonna be great. So we're looking forward to it. November eleventh and twelfth. Go to our website, redcradio.org today and sign up before it fills up to capacity. We're gonna have about three hundred at each each location and no more. November eleventh so. in Brazos Valley. 
November 12th in Central Texas at the West KC Hall. And we've got some special announcements to make for sure here in the Brazos Valley. Yeah. And uh, um, a lot to celebrate in Central Texas. Oh my gosh, a lot of great things have been happening, folks. And we well, can't wait to tell you. We don't about want to them. spill the beans now, right, Dennis? We no, want to not yet. Not want to. Not yet. So you got to come to find out, yep. get a scoop. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, and as Dennis and Thaddeus were saying, uh, it's a good idea to bring somebody that doesn't usually listen to Catholic radio. Exactly. Yep. Introduce them to you know Catholic radio, but mm-hmm. especially introduce them to guys from the Catholic Man Show, and yep. they're going to be hooked. Yep. Yeah, it's going to be so a lot, a lot of fun. people out there that are you know faithful Catholics. They go to church every Sunday. They make their holy days. They they pray. But maybe they don't listen to Catholic radio, and it's just something else that can help deepen their faith life and make them a better witness of the uh, of the gospel. Yes, yeah, so go out and invite them. Yeah, great Christian fellowship. I'm telling you, people, you got to get out, get out of your home. You got to come see us and have a blast. It always is a, a very fun benefit dinner. Yep. We get lots of great reviews. Yep. And before we go to break, I wanted to make sure we touch on the feast day that's coming up tomorrow. And which one is that? Our Lady of the Rosary. Previously known as Our Lady of Victory. Yes. Mm -hmm. And uh, in a second, we'll talk about why she was known as Our Lady of the Victory and Mm -hmm. why it was changed to Our Lady of the Rosary. Okay. But before we do that, October is known as... The month of the rosary. It is. And it is known as the month of the rosary specifically because of this feast day coming up tomorrow. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And uh, the history of this feast day is absolutely fascinating because it is basically a feast day of gratitude. And, uh, you know, we have so many feast days for saints that we're just recognizing them as saints, Mm -hmm. that they led holy lives, that we're called to follow them. But the story of the Battle of Lepanto is something unique in Catholic history because when the Battle of Lepanto was fought, no one in their right mind would have guessed that the Christian forces were going to win this battle. That's right. The numbers were stacked. (laughs) Yes, dramatically so, and equipment. The Muslim forces were far better equipped. And can I can I give you a a number here because I have the number to hand. Go for it. Uh, The Ottoman fleet was a naval battle. They Mm -hmm. had three hundred war galleys, one hundred thousand soldiers on those war galleys. The (laughs) Holy League, the Christian Catholic opposition, two hundred and eight ships. They had about 26,000 troops. Okay, so... 10 to 1, maybe? Mm-hmm. Well, you're looking at uh, 98,000 less ships. and <laughs> Less men, less men. Uh, less men, and, you know, just dramatic reduction in forces. 100 less ships. Yeah, 100 about. less ships. So, uh, And, again, no one expected this battle to be won by the Christian forces. And so the Pope called for a rosary to be prayed. And uh, Pope Pius IX actually led a rosary procession. Pope Pius V, sir. Pope Pope St. Pius V. Yes. Yes. Uh, Led a um, rosary procession through the streets of Rome, Mm -hmm. praying for a victory. Mm -hmm. And the interesting thing is that he was already certain of the victory 
before news actually reached Rome that the battle had been won. That's right. And uh, the battle was won, and uh, it was attributed to the praying of the rosary. Yes, can I also add something else in? So you said he got news prior, he knew uh, before messengers had told him, he suddenly stood up, he was meeting with his treasury, Treasurer, he went to the window and said, quote, this is not a moment for business. Make haste to thank God because our fleet this moment has won a victory over the Turks. Yep. A sign from above. Divine inspiration. Yes. But the important thing about this is that had this battle been lost, Mm -hmm. Rome would have fallen to the Ottoman Turks and more than likely Christendom would have ended. Because the Ottoman Turks were trying to wipe Christianity off the face of the map. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And their great hope was that they were going to take over Europe and Rome in particular. Mm-hmm. And it is through the praying of the rosary that this did not happen. Mm-hmm. And so the feast of the Our Lady of Victory was celebrated by the church at first in Rome and then spreading out. And it was renamed Our Lady of the Rosary. Right. Just a year later, as a matter of fact. Yes. To remind us. So this wasn't some, you know, post-Vatican II softening of things. It was <laughs> the very next year was renamed to the Our Lady of the Rosary because Pope Gregory the Eleventh, I believe, wanted to highlight the importance of the rosary as a spiritual weapon. And popes have been driving this point home since then, mm-hmm. that the rosary is a weapon for us as Christians. Prayer is a weapon for us as Christians, that we do not win wars, especially not spiritual wars, by fighting. We win them by praying. They're trying to get a million people to say uh, rosaries throughout the month. Uh, EWTN Relevant Radio are actually working together on something, folks, So yes. with the Napa Institute. And let me also mention that on October 10th, here in Bryan College Station at Sue Haswell Park, there is going to be a public rosary. Yes. And we so, have a PSA running about that for more details. Yep. Yes. Listen to the Catholic Radio for details and join us at the rosary on October 10th. Mm-hmm. And join us on the other side of the break for Professor... Steve Weidenkopf. Yes. Steve Weidenkopf. And uh, Tell us a little bit more about that. Light from darkness, nine times the Catholic Church was in turmoil and came out stronger than ever before. We'll see you all on the other side of this short break. Happy Wednesday morning, everyone. Yes, glad to have you listening. St. Bruno, pray for us. All this I can, I am. And we're back, and you're listening to the Red Sea Roundup. I'm your host, Deacon Mike Beauvais, and as promised in a moment, we're going to be talking with Dr. Steve Weidenkopf. He's the author of the book, Light from Darkness, Nine Times the Catholic Church Was in Turmoil and Came Out Stronger Than Before. Uh, Dr. Weidenkopf teaches at Christendom College Graduate School of Theology, and he's the author of numerous books, most of them 
talking about the history of the Catholic Church. And Dr. Weidenkopf, welcome. Hey, thanks for having me on the show. Uh, I was uh, so looking forward to this because uh, the title of the book is so appropriate for right now because everybody I talk to seems to have this dim view of the future. It's, you know, everything's going uh, down the tubes. It's, you know, horrible. And it's a good reminder that this is not the first time in the life of the church that things, uh, things have looked dim. Yeah, right. No, Deacon, you know, that's, uh, that's, that's exactly why I wrote the book, frankly, is, uh, um, you know, I, I, when I go through the country and give talks at, you know, various parishes and conferences, and even in my teaching, right, I, w- I would get asked questions over the last several years, frankly, you know, has, has things ever been as bad as they are now in church history? And I always, I always, that, that question always struck me as kind of odd, frankly, because um, my first reaction to it was, well, uh, no. I mean, <laughs> things have been way worse in the past, in past centuries in church history. Um, and, you know, but then I thought, well, why are people asking that question? I mean, for me, someone steeped in church history, the, the answer was kind of obvious. No, things are things have been bad and even worse than they are now. Not That's not that, to downplay any of the problems or crises or issues we have in the church today at all. But but, you know, it's it's not to, to to say that things are as worse now as they've ever been or even, you know, the, the worst time we've ever had. Um, but then I thought to myself, well, why are people asking that question? I mean, so one one answer to that question, I think, was, well, it's maybe people don't know their church history. And that's that's one aspect of the answer. Um, and, and I've kind of laid it, made it somewhat of my mission the last several years, if you will, to try to change that um, so that people have a greater knowledge of church history. But then the other part of the question that I tried, to, that I wrestled with, or the answer I came up with was, well, I think it's not only just a lack of historical knowledge, but it's also a lack of historical perspective, right? I think in our day and age, we live in a day and age that's so centered, so focused on the present uh, that we, we really lose the ability to look backwards in time and and realize uh, you know the, and to place these historical events that happened to us or things that are happening to us even now in a perspective that doesn't lead us to the point of despair, right? Um, that that instead the historical perspective should lead us to the point of hopefulness uh, and should lessen our anxiety. One of the things I thought when I was was reading the book is that. I don't remember a time in history where humanity was so focused on the present that we totally forgot about the past. And that seems to be something that's happening today that, you know, we're so focused that this is the only relevant time there is. And so we sort of dismiss history. Yeah, exactly right. I mean, I I think that there's, um, yeah, I agree with that assessment. I think that you know, there's really kind of two reasons for that. Maybe I, I think that you know, in the in the modern age, we we have tended to, in many ways, we, I should put it this way. In many ways, we I think we approach the subject of history from a supposed position of superiority, right? I think that we we like to consider ourselves in the in a, you know the collective we society as a whole. We, we like to think of ourselves as uh, you know better than those who came before us, and perhaps in some ways we are, but in, in many other ways we're not. And in many other ways, we're very similar, right, to the people who lived in centuries past. Um, but but we like to have this this notion, or we have this notion of modernity that we are better than our forebears, and so we and we're smarter than them, if you will. And so we we kind of, in many cases, in many ways, we kind of dismiss right what has happened in the past. Uh, 
again, either from a position of superiority or just a position of, well, it doesn't really matter to our own day and age, right? Um, so I think that's a problem in modernity. But I also think it kind of goes back to what I just mentioned a little bit ago is in terms of the present, right? Our society is so focused in the here and now, and we, we've structured a society which is so focused in, in the here and now, what I call in the book the tyranny of the present, that, you know, we, we, we really – have lost a sense of perspective. We've lost a sense of, of recognizing the lessons that we can learn from history um, because we're so just, you know, inundated with, with having our attention fixated on the now, right? Uh, we've created this consumerist society, the society that, that, that eats, if you will, you know, uh, vigorously information at a rapid pace, but it's information now in the here and now, right? So something is important now for 30 seconds, but then it's not important, you know, 30 seconds later kind of thing. Um, and, and I think that our, the fast, rapid pace of our society and the technology that, that uh, you know, accompanies that uh, contributes to it. Now, there's many good things that come from modern technology, uh, but I think there's some negative down part, downfalls associated with it as well. And one of those, I think, is, again, a, a, a loss of historical perspective. One question I had is, how did you manage to pick just nine? Because I was uh, thinking, you know, I mean, the church basically started in controversy. You know, what do we do about circumcision? Uh, you know, Gnosticism, all these things that, you know, uh, were present from the very early church, Arianism, all these things. And how did you come up with just these nine? Are, you think they're the most representative or just... They fit. Yeah, no, that's that's. I get I get that question a lot actually um, from people, you know, interviewers uh, about the book here recently, and and it's a great question. And uh, you're exactly right, right? I mean, from the very beginning of the church's history, there's always been controversy, crisis, turmoil, whatever word you want to use, right? From from the beginnings of the apostolic age, you know, all the way to our own time, it's hard to find one time where there hasn't been right a crisis or an issue or a problem, both either externally to the church, you know, or internally in the church. Um, but what I wanted to do was, as I was wrestling with this with this whole question, right, of people asking me why, you know, is this the worst time ever, and why do people have this, and and how can what what can I meaningfully bring to this conversation this about this topic. Um, I thought to myself, well, you know, let's go, let's, as a review, you know, the church's history and look at these various crises, is there anything that we can see, any pattern, any hope, any lessening of anxiety that can come from it? And so what I wanted to do was, was write a book and focus on learning the lessons from history. And, and one of the lessons I think that we can learn from the crises that I put, those nine crises I present in the book in, of the church's history, is that these nine in particular were widespread, they were significant. They were large. They were universal. They had universal application throughout the whole church. So it wasn't just related to like maybe one area of the church uh, or one geographic area of the church. But but even more importantly, it, they all led all of these nine crises that I identify in the book lead or led to a great time of renewal, restoration, and reform. And I think that's the great lesson to be learned from in our own day and age from looking back on church history and trying to make sense of crises and turmoil and problems um, is that, that hence the title of the book, Light from Darkness. God does bring good things from evil, right? We know that. He brings light from the dark times. It might not be immediately. So you have these various crises in the church. It might not be within the lifetime of anyone living during the crises that they see the reform or the restoral or the restoration. It may be centuries later. But each of the nine that I highlight very specifically had a period of reform or some type of reform 
that came as a result of the crisis. And so I think that's a good lesson for us in our modern day is that, um, you know, there might be turmoil, there might be problems, there are issues in the church, whatever, today, but that, but it doesn't end there, right? That's not, that's not the end of the story. The story is not to say, oh, there was worse time in the church's history than there is now. The story, the rest of the story is things can be bad or have been bad in the church's history, but they have produced, right, periods of great vitality, periods of great reform, periods of great faith. It's because of the crises that those things existed. So that's, or that's why that reform came about. So that's why I picked the nine that I highlight in the book. One thing you, you know, didn't mention in this, each one of them also produced great saints. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I try to highlight that as I go through each of the chapters, right? That there's, there's in, in each case, there's always one or two or several great saints, right? That the Holy Spirit brings to the life of the church to, to deal with the issue, to, to help the church through the crisis, or even to, to help the church bring about the reform and the, and the restoration. And, and those are, you know, it's a mix of, of, of clergy as well as lay people, right? Uh, saints throughout the church's history that have done that. So, um, that's exactly right. That's, you know, and that, I think that also gives us a, another great sense of hope in the modern age that, you know, there are great people, good people, good leaders, saintly, you know, virtuous people that the, that the Holy Spirit is inundating the church with even now, right? And even in the future. So we can, we can take solace and know that, that, uh, you know, God is still with his church. And as Christ said, the gates of hell will not, hell will not prevail against it. Now, the first crises in the church that you cover in the book uh, is the Lapsey controversy. Would you tell us a little bit about what the problem was with this? Yeah, sure. So what I try to do in the book is, is or what I do do, rather, is, is through each of the chapters, uh, the, the chapters are, are organized uh, in the same way. So I present the historical background of what's happening in, in the time leading up to the crisis or the time around the crisis. Then I present what the crisis actually was, what the problem was in the church, and then uh, the end of the chapter is the time of reform and, and renewal and restoration that the crisis produced. And so in this first chapter on the lapsy, the historical background to what's happening is this is the time in the early church's history in the third and fourth centuries of the Roman persecutions, right? Um, and they begin even before that in, in the first century. But what happens as a result of these various Roman persecutions, especially the persecution from the emperor Decius in the mid-third century, is that you have people, sadly Christians, who give in during the persecution. So let's say the, the persecution was that every citizen in the empire had to uh, offer incense to the pagan gods, the Roman pagan gods. And so, and, and then when you did that, you received a document, a libellus from the authorities that showed that you had given uh, your, your sacrifice. And so the question became in the church, right, do we, do we hold out? Do we not? Do we give in? Uh, you know, who, uh, people had to react, had to answer that question uh, uh, for themselves. And so many Christians, sadly, during this period of time did give in, and they, they either sacrificed directly um, to get the certificate so that they wouldn't be killed, uh, many steadfastly refused and maintained the faith and were arrested, were tortured, were imprisoned. Some were obviously killed as martyrs. Um, and then there were others who didn't sacrifice directly, but then they uh, paid people to sacrifice on their behalf. Let's say you're a rich Christian. You could send your servant to the authorities to uh, to sacrifice in your name. So you could say, well, I didn't personally sacrifice, but, you know, somebody sacrificed in my name. And so, you know, that makes me a little bit different than those who actually did sacrifice. So there's all these things going on, right? There's a huge question, huge problem that it really impacts the church. And then what happens that produces this, this group of people known as the lapsy is that when persecution ends, 
Many of these people who had given in in one shape or another decide they want to return to communion with the church, right? They're, they're sorry for what they did. They recognize it was wrong. They were scared. They were fearful of their lives. Um, but now that, that, that there's no threat of violence or death, they want to they want to come back into the church. And so members of the church then have to deal with this question. They're called these people who want to come back are called the lapsi. They're the ones who've given in. So what do we do with them, right? Uh, there's And different camps develop in the church uh, over that question. There's one group uh, on one side of the coin called the rigorists, and they were people who said, look, the, the lapsi, you know, they can't come back into communion. Uh, it doesn't matter, right? They apostatized. They gave in. Um, I didn't. You know, I was tortured. I was imprisoned. I had family members killed, whatever the situation is. Um, we held fast. They didn't do so. So they should no amount of penance, no amount of mercy can be granted them to come back. On the other hand, so it was the rigorists. On the other hand, you had the group known as the laxists. People in the church who said, well, we understand the situation of the Lapsi, right? We understand why they gave in. It was a difficult time. It was a dark time. It was a hard time. Uh, they were f- afraid. So, you know, they're sorry now. So we can, we should welcome them with open arms and, and return them to communion. And then there was the middle position that was really embraced by the various bishops of Rome, especially Pope St. Cornelius, a lot of North African bishops as well, especially St. Cyprian of Carthage. That, that were in the middle that said, well, you know, giving in during the persecution, um, being a lapsy is a significant and serious sin. Uh, there should be a period of penance uh, for those who are truly contrite and truly, truly remorseful. They should undergo significant penance until they can be allowed back into the church. And so thankfully, it was that middle road, that moderate position, if you will, that, that ultimately um, won the day, if you will, that answered the question in the early church. Again, we're talking with Professor Steve Weidenkopf, the author of Light from Darkness. And Dr. Weidenkopf, so much of this, you know, while the issues change, things like it happen in the church all the time. I was thinking when I was reading this, you know, right now we have uh, the question of, you know, divorced and remarried Catholics. And, you know, there are various positions in the church of how we should approach this. And so, you know, hopefully, you know, we trust that the church has handled these crises before and it'll handle them again. Yeah, absolutely right. I mean, that's, that's, that's what comes across, I think, clear as we study each of these different crises in the church's history, right? That, that there are major questions that come about and it's, it's a process, right? It's a period of time, usually, with multiple people providing input and opinions, right, bishops, clergy, laity, popes, um, and, and trying to resolve and come up with, you know, the, not only necessarily, and there's different aspects to the question as well, too, right? Sometimes it's a theological question, a doctrinal question of trying to settle or understand what our teachings are in this particular area, or how to more clearly articulate them even as well. And then there's also a pastoral application to it, um, as well, right? How do we pastorally apply the the doctrinal teachings, you know, in the in the time and circumstances in which people are living their faith? Uh, and that's very clearly, you know, both of those aspects are very clearly illustrated in the chapter we just talked about, right? The lapsy that you had the doctrinal question of, you know, forgiveness and of of sins after baptism, and and what does the church really teach about that? What does God has re- what has God revealed about those questions, and how do we interpret those, and how do we understand them? And then there was a pastor application of, you know, well, you know, what what do we do with people who, who as I mentioned before, right, just they didn't sacrifice personally, but they had someone sacrificing their name, or what do we, how do we compare them to the people who actually did sacrifice? 
And so there's that pastoral application of a question as well. And we see that throughout various times of crisis and, and questions in church history. And one of the most comforting things I found in this whole section of your book is the fact that St. Hippolytus, one of the rigorists who was very much opposed to any kind of clemency for these people, became anti-pope, but now he's a saint. Yeah, yeah, his, St. Paul's is one of my favorite stories in all of church history, right, where he's he's the only, he's the very first anti-pope in church history, and he's the only anti-pope ever canonized, right, because, as you mentioned, he was a rigorist, and that led him into schism, it led him into into having his followers elect him anti-pope, and he was, you know, an anti-pope through, through several valid, you know, papacies of other popes, and or of, of valid popes. And uh, and at the end, you know, he was rounded up and 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 sent along with Saint Pontian, who was pope, uh, to the mines of Sardinia, and in one of the Roman persecutions. And while he was there in the mines, he he you know gave up, if you will, or, or renounced his his anti papacy, um, and was restored to communion by Saint Pontian. Both of them died, and both in the mines, and both were recognized as martyrs. Uh, and share the same feast day on the liturgical calendar. So, yeah, he's a great story and a great example that that mercy, God's mercy, and the and the church's, you know, uh, uh, understanding and living of of God's mercy uh, is is always present, right? There's there's you you have up until the very last moment, right, on this on your in your life to to be able to turn back to God, to ask for forgiveness, to put aside pride, and and to uh, and to live out the virtue of humility. Uh, and, and, you know, be uh, welcomed back into communion in the Church. And that is such a blessing for all of us. One thing... Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Go ahead. The uh, section on corruption and immorality, uh, again, you know, there are so many similarities, uh, I think, in the past in the Church that, you know, we find semblance of in the modern Church also. We've had lots of issues, you know, with corruption and immorality in the church today. And this is such a wonderful chapter to show us that that too can be overcome in the church. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's, uh, you're, you know, you hit it right on the head there in terms of uh, what we're dealing with in, in the church in the modern age. And, um, you know, the, with the sex abuse crisis over the last, you know, number of decades here, the, you know, corruption, even the you know, financial corruption and things like that, um, recently in, in the church. And, and, you know, sadly, it's, it's not a new thing, you know, and, and that's one of the, the, uh, elements I would point out to people, you know, it's always the question people would raise, you know, we have all these these problems with, with clerical sexual morality, and, um, you know, the church has never experienced that before, and then, I, you know, I have to correct people and say, well, not really true. I mean, you know, back in the 11th century, there was some significant amounts of, of problems in these areas. You had um, two major issues in the 11th century, uh, simony, which is uh, the abuse of buying and selling ecclesiastical offices, so you'd have you know, uh, wealthy individuals who would try to buy or did buy, you know, a bishopric or, a, or an abbotship and, uh, in order to increase their own power and authority and influence and wealth. Uh, and so you had this kind of buying and selling of these offices, which causes scandal and is obviously not the, the way that Christ intended uh, for, you know, order, holy orders to be, uh, you know, confected in the church. And so that's a significant issue and problem. Then you had also in the 11th century, problems with clerical sexual immorality, where, where clerics, priests, were not living, and monks were not living 
their vow of celibacy, their promise of celibacy, right? Rather, they were uh, engaging openly in concubinage uh, with women, you know, fathering children. You had significant problems in the monasteries of the 11th century, and many of them, with home, with rampant homosexuality uh, and that vice and that that sin. And so, you know, you, you uh, it, and that causes you know problems as well for the church. Obviously, it 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 not only causes scandal. The faithful see that the clerics and monks are not living the life that they're called to live and they're supposed to live, which weakens can weaken people's faith and and trust in the church. Um, and it, it causes all other kinds of issues as well. And as you point out earlier, right, the church. Um, usually, the Holy Spirit, Christ, raises up a great saint to help us deal with these problems during uh, these great crises. And in this particular case, in the 11th century, he raised up the great Saint Peter Damian, uh, you know, a Benedictine monk himself, who eventually is created a cardinal, becomes a papal advisor, and he writes a book to the Pope at the time, Pope Saint Leo the Ninth, uh, later given the title the Book of Gomorrah, where he addresses all these issues and, and, and exhorts the Pope, encourages the Pope to deal with this, to initiate a reform, to root out the sin of homosexuality from the monastery, to enforce uh, the promise of celibacy uh, from the clergy. And Pope St. Leo IX, you know, really took to heart, uh, at least initially, what Peter Damien sent to him and, and went off on and participated and, and brought forth, I should say, perhaps the greatest papal reform movement in, in all of, of church history, where he spent most of his papacy traveling throughout Christendom, uh, you know, getting rid of bishops who refused to, uh, you know, to not practice simony, to not practice or to not be faithful to their vow of celibacy, the promise of celibacy, rather. And so, you know, it, this this darkness, this evil, this this allowance of sin to be pervasive throughout the clergy eventually led to one of the greatest reform movements in all of church history. So definitely light came from darkness in that situation. I want to remind all our listeners that we're talking for, with Professor Steve Weidenkopf about his book, Light from Darkness, Nine Times the Catholic Church Was in Turmoil and Came Out Stronger Than Before. And the section on investigators, uh, again, there's such connection to our modern times. I was thinking, you know, the whole problem with having secular authorities uh in charge of nominating bishops and placing them into office. We had a similar thing in China. Well, still do that. You know, these things don't ever really completely go away, or at least they raise their ugly heads again. So what was the story behind the investigators back then? Yeah, so the investiture controversy is is one of these issues that occurs in, in the 11th century in the church that but really has to do with the central question that you just you hit on right here is is you know who, who really kind of controls the church right is it the church or is it the secular authority and and you know who appoints bishops is it the church uh, is it you know the pope or is it uh, secular authority right um, and so it's it, you really as part of this papal reform movement we just mentioned uh, in terms of clerical corruption and sexual morality undertaken by Pope Saint Leo the Ninth and others after him. The, these reformers began to realize, especially one uh, monk uh, whose name was Hildebrand, who later became Pope, Pope St. Gregory VII, began to realize that, you know, there's there's internal factors or internal issues that need to be addressed in the church in terms of reform, which were being addressed. And then there's also external factors, right? The church cannot really truly be reformed and restored to the way that it, you know, it's pristine state, if you will, 
um, these reformers believed. If there was external secular pressure uh, on the church, and not only pressure, but even control, right, on the church. And so what happens in, in this area is they begin to, St. Gregory the Seventh in particular, sees this, this um, practice known as investiture um, in the German territory at the time as being a significant hindrance to the independency of the church. And what investiture was, was you had in these German territories at the time, you had the king who would appoint um, men to be bishops, uh, would nominate men to be bishops, and that appointment would be accepted. But then in the ceremony, and then there were also uh, royal officials or secular officials as well. So they held a secular office as well as a church office. And so in the, the ceremony in which the, and so this is the time of, you know, the feudal period of time in Europe, and especially in German land and in, in other areas of Europe. And so, you know, these relationships between ruler and vassal, lord and subject are extremely important in the basis of society. And so you would have these uh, kings, especially, in, again, in German territory, who have these men who are both secular uh, holding office holders as well as spiritual office holders. And so in the ceremony in which he would invest, uh, hence the word investiture, the secular symbols of authority uh, on the individual, a sword or a spear or what have you, he would also in the same ceremony grant the symbols of his spiritual office as bishop or abbot. So, for example, as a bishop would give him then the symbols of the crozier and the ring, symbols that bishops still use today for their uh, to symbolize their authority in their office. And so that, that though gives the indication that if, you know, the, the secular authority is providing these symbols, investing the candidate with these symbols of authority, spiritual authority, then it calls into question, well, is the king giving, in essence, you know, spiritual authority to the individual? Um, and, and that was something that, you know, uh, Hildebrand, St. Gregory VII, and other church reformers at the time thought was just a little too, too uh, you know, close to state control of the church, if you will, or, or secular control of the church. And they wanted to separate that. They wanted to ensure that, the, you know, the bishops were appointed, um, you know, by the pope or were appointed by the people of the diocese, that they were free from that kind of secular contagion, if you will. And so Gregory VII actually bans the practice. Um, the king of Germans at the time is Henry IV, and they get they get involved in this really kind of nasty personal conflict um, between each other, where Henry IV sees the Pope, uh, that action as, as being uh, kind of taking over his authority or trying to uh, assume you know, royal authority in German lands. Uh, you know, Gregory sees Henry investing candidates with uh, the Episcopal symbols of office as encroaching on church authority. And so you have this really nasty conflict that, that erupts between the two men, uh, which ultimately leads to Henry marching an army down to Rome, uh, encircling the city, besieging it, and, uh, and Gregory having to call the Normans up from the south of Italy to, to liberate the city. But then they sack the city, and then the people of Rome blame Gregory for that, so then he has to leave and dies ultimately in exile. Um, but the great reform and renewal that came from it was a, a sense of a more powerful and more strong and more independent papacy later in the church's history by the time they get to the 13th century, really kind of embodied in the pontificate of Pope Innocent III. And this was something that I noted that, uh, you know, sometimes we don't know the positive that's coming out of something because— we can't see into the future, and sometimes the efforts pay off in the long run, even though they seem to be failures in the short term. 
Yeah, absolutely. You know, that's that's one of the points I think that, that comes out of the book is that in some cases, you know, you know, we never live to see that if we're living in a time of crisis, we don't live to see the the uh, renewal. Right. It, it happens many, many years later, centuries later, even and decades later. So uh, at times. And so it's it's an important lesson for us that, that to kind of just to continue to persevere. Right. That that we are not always guaranteed. Uh, the ability to to see the you know the the reform to see the restoration and, and instead we just have to continue to soldier on and trust and know that Christ will bring light from darkness. In the Albigensian heresy section, uh, this is one of these periods that is so misunderstood or misrepresented in Catholic history. Would you talk a little bit about that time period and? Um, what came out of it? Yeah, sure. So the Albigensian heresy is one of the, the biggest, you know, heretical movements and most dangerous heretical movements that the church had to deal with, um, frankly. And this this is as you get into the later uh, 12th into the early 13th century. It's a heresy that erupts in the south of France around the town of Albi, hence the name Albigensianism. It was also called, it's also known as Catharism. Um, from the you know Cathar, which is uh, the word that was associated with with the the individuals who who, uh, who you know most practiced the heresy, if you will, they were known as the pure or the perfect. Um, and this this heresy was was a group that or this heresy really was a teaching that had its um, elements or its its you know antecedents, if you will, in uh, in the early church in terms of the heresy of Gnosticism. So. This is a Gnostic type heresy that sees the world in kind of two different camps. It sees the material world as being bad and evil. It's in anything material. So the body, for example, would be considered bad and evil. Um, and the anything that's uh, good is spiritual. So your soul is good, but your body is bad, if you will. Um, and so the, the in the south of France at the time, too, you had this a very corrupt episcopacy and very malformed um, uh, clergy. And so you had the the perfect or these these Albigensians, uh, they lived at least seemingly outwardly very virtuous life, right? They they practice what they preach. They practice very extreme forms of asceticism because of their belief that the material body is bad. So they practice uh, extreme fasting and all kinds of other you know bodily penances. And so they presented this this outward appearance of being very holy and of living what they're preaching, whereas the Catholic clergy in the south of France at the time uh, did not, right? You had simony, which we talked about earlier, which the church had dealt with centuries before, and it had kind of uh, laid dormant or gone away for a period, but now it's it's been resurrected, if you will. You have clergy, again, not living the promise of celibacy either and, and making providing a bad example in the south of France. So the heresy became very pervasive and spread, and, and not only because of the clergy, but also because you had the secular rulers in the south of France who were very open to allowing the heresy to persist, right? Unlike in other areas of Christendom where secular rulers were very much concerned about maintaining, um, you know, orthodoxy and unity in faith, uh, because as you study history or you study heresy, rather, you see that heretical movements and heresies in the church usually produce periods of violence, times of great violence. And so secular rulers were very concerned about heresy um, and not wanting it to arise because they're obviously concerned with uh, you know, the safety of, of society and secular uh, peace and public safety. 
And so in this time period, uh, which is, I think, one of the aspects that many people uh, misunderstand about the medieval period, is that heresy was not only a uh, spiritual crime, if you will, it was not only a danger to the church, but heresy was also a secular crime. It was a, it was a secular danger, a danger to the, to the civil society. And so whereas in the church, heresy brought forth excommunication as a punishment, in the secular world, heresy was treated quite harshly uh, in secular laws were treated heresy as a capital offense, right? So something one could be put to death by the state or a secular authority for heretical beliefs because the person was a threat to the security of the of the area, right? And then peace and stability of society. So that's the kind of background that you have going on here in this time. And so what, what produces this, this great crisis, what comes forth from it really are two different things. One is the rise of the medieval inquisitors um, and many people, you know, again, give uh, the inquisitors this kind of, you know, uh, there's all kinds of mischaracterizations and misrepresentations about the inquisitors in our modern age. And there's many, many myths associated with this period uh, of time and, and with what these, these men did do. Um, but in essence, these medieval inquisitors were, were brought about a legal revolution, really, or even before them. There's this legal revolution in the church in the 13th century that adopted a different way of examining evidence and examining, um, you know, crimes, if you will, uh, and, and a change in procedure. And the, the, the change really went to this from accusatorial procedure to inquisitorial procedure. And briefly, what that means is in accusatorial procedure, what would happen is previously if somebody committed a crime or it was just, uh, the individual's family or the victim themselves would go before the secular authority and accuse the person of a crime. Uh, so the secular authority would then, you know, uh, bring both parties to in front uh, of them and then ask them questions. And then the secular authority would decide, uh, you know, who was who was guilty, who wasn't. And if they couldn't decide, then sometimes the guilt was established through other or the, the guilt or innocence was established through other means, sometimes juridical combat, sometimes through, you know, different kinds of uh, of ordeals that people went underwent, right? Um, but with the change from accusatorial to inquisitorial procedure, what that meant was now that the church or the state now begins to investigate uh, these crimes, calls forth witnesses, um, takes down you know statements from multitudes of different people, and then really uh, desires the confession of an individual. And so that's really where the inquisitors come in: is somebody accused of heresy was allowed to, was brought before the inquisitors, they questioned the individual about their beliefs. Um, it was not only a time to receive information about what the person believed, um, but also to present, uh, you know, a catechesis of Orthodox Catholic doctrine to the individual as well to help illustrate to them or to show them in, if, if it was true that they were believing erroneously and they were placing their immortal soul in danger by believing in something that was false, right, uh, that would, that would uh, in any way, shape or form, um, you know, prevent their salvation. <clears throat> so. You have that, you have the inquisitors that arise, and they bring forth really this um, very meticulous, very organized, charitable way in which of examining, uh, you know, heresy and of allowing opportunities for accused heretics to be reconciled to the church um, before being handed over and dealt with by the secular authorities in a very, you know, uh, harsh kind of way. And then also really what produced from this time period is the rise of what we call the mendicant orders, right? The great two great religious orders of the Franciscans and the Dominicans um, who go forth and teach, right? And preach uh, and illustrate a life of great virtue and holiness 
uh, in contrast to many of the, the clergy in the south of France at the time, especially the Dominicans, uh, in order to, to help raise up a group of clergy that could defend the faith when challenged by heretics and who could um, also provide and present a good example uh, to the Christian faithful. Which is a reminder that good catechesis is vitally important in the church in the past and today. Yes, absolutely. Very, very true. Now, we're almost out of time. We've got about five minutes left, and so I wanted to talk a little bit about the last part of your book, and uh, it is something that's still going on, and uh, this modernism and neo-paganism, the notion that you know we have basically grown beyond the church, and now instead of having one god, we have all these other little gods that— we put in our life. And this, of course, leads to relativism. Would you talk a little bit about this before we have to finish? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think the modern age, right, is, is, a, is a time that's, that's very difficult, as you, as you point out, right? It's a time of moral relativism and skepticism. Um, a lot of that stems from the Enlightenment period, which is the chapter you know before this in the book mm-hmm. where I talk about the the growth of the Enlightenment or the Enlightenment movement, I should say rather. And so, in the modern world, right, we have these these kind of you know rise of totalitarian political ideologies um, that demand you know obedience to the secular authority that try to replace faith with reason uh, or even you know faith in in God or in spiritual things uh, and and transfer it, if you will, to even material things or government. Uh, governmental things or political systems or political ideologies. And so that's, and as you point out too, we're living in kind of in a post-Christian world, right? In a, in a neo-pagan world where we've seen a growth in people worshiping, you know, pagan deities or, or affixing their, what would ordinarily be, you know, uh, faith and worship on uh, of God into worship of things or worship of people or worship of false gods. And so that causes a significant problem, obviously, for the church, but the way in which and has impacted the church in many, many ways, you know, in our society as a whole that we live with every day. But I think, as I point out in the book, that one of the great renewals or the renewal that's really coming as a result of this period of time of modernism and neopaganism is a revival of of Catholic laity, right, and of lay people getting involved in the church, um, you know, through working in the parishes or in dioceses or establishing different apostolates and you know catechesis we've talked about and other forms of ministry uh, and really embracing what the second vatican council mentioned in in the document lumen gentium that whole universal call to holiness right that each individual catholic by virtue of baptism is called to live a life of virtue and to and to uh, you know be a disciple of christ to others in the world dr weidenkopf uh your book is Light from Darkness. Nine times the Catholic Church was in turmoil and came out stronger than before. Where can our listeners purchase the book? So it's published by Catholic Answers Press. So the best place to go is to their website. It's shop.catholic.com, and you can find it there, um, as well as probably the, the most uh, you know closest Catholic bookstore to, to you all. And in our conversation the thing you know that i heard is that you know there have been so many times in the history of the church when times seemed awful dark and yet the church has always come out stronger in certain respects and so what message should our listeners come away with when reading this book 
Yeah, my, my hope is that people read the book and, and have maybe, uh, you know, gain some historical knowledge, but also gain historical perspective on things. And so that when when they read things or hear things that are happening in the church today, various problems or this or that that are going on, um, to, to not be, you know, to not be so fully burdened by those issues or problems that they lose hope in the church or lose hope in their faith. Um, or, or attempted to even walk away from faith or from the church, right? But rather to, to learn from these periods of time that, you know, through the dark times, really because of the dark times in church history, great reform, great renewal, great restoration and vitality of the Catholic faith in the church uh, occurs. And so, um, you know, to continue to distrust in God and put your trust in Christ and uh, continue to frequent the sacraments and to grow in our daily Christian life, uh, reforming ourselves so that we can be part of the larger reform of the church in those times when she needs to be reformed. And as we saw, uh, looking at the these chapters, you know, there are saints in each one of these eras that really helped bring about these changes, and all of us are called to be saints. So hopefully we all strive to become the saint that helps change the world that we see with that dim view and never lose sight of the fact that we're called to be a people of hope. Yeah, absolutely. Right. We're Christians. And as you said, we're people of hope and people of joy. And I try to cover that topic in my last chapter in the book, how to respond to church, to crisis in the church and how not to, by highlighting two individuals um, in particular, just I'll mention St. Catherine of Siena as, as how to respond. I think Catherine provides us a great example of how to respond during a time, living during a time of great church crisis she was one who had great love and hope and joy in Jesus. Uh, and if we imitate her, then we are we are doing well. Thank you, Dr. Steve Weidenkopf. And thank you, listeners, for tuning in. Next week, Gene Wilhelm will be your host on the Red Sea Roundup. Remember to tune in for that. Until then, when considering the many ways in which you might share your time, talents, and treasure with the people of God, always round up. <laughs>